slow down. Capital allocation in a hurry is really not a good idea. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm excited to be interviewing Greg Hoyt, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Gather Venture Group, which is an investment firm based in Minneapolis um, that specializes in the food and beverage space. So welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Christy. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, let's just start with a little bit of background. Can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about you and how you wound up at Gather and how you wound up founding sure. it? Sure. It goes actually goes back to 1993. I got out of college. My first job was with Caribou Coffee. At the time, there were three stores. And there were two things that struck me about that job that I got. One, I fell in love with the coffee industry. And two, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And those were things that I was able to learn quite a bit about over the few years that I was at Caribou. And I parlayed that into a career that started for me in 2000 as an entrepreneur, uh, still in coffee, but in a different category than Caribou, which I did for a number of years and then got involved in and started another coffee business in 2010 and then acquired a a bakery in Minneapolis, a very prominent French-style bakery in Minneapolis in 2015. And the way that Gather started was largely out of that journey and a discovery that two things. One, I really wanted my entrepreneurial journey to pivot to being an investing entrepreneur. And two, the incredible need for capital for emerging food businesses here in Minnesota. And it's led us at Gather to actually go outside of Minnesota for, for businesses in which we can partner. So lots of things to touch on there, but I want to hear about what made you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. And I think, how do you actually decide that at such an early point? Like what makes you feel like that's a, a path? What I saw in my 20s when I was at Caribou, and most of us were in our 20s at the time, I saw that there was no assurance that the plan was going to work. There was no certainty when a new store opened that anyone would come. And yet there was a move, there was a verve inside each of us that still continued to push and keep stick to the mission and the vision and keep pushing. And it just, it really blew me away that I I was in that and I wanted to create that on my own. And I think it was just the experience that I had, had with the, you know, the ups and downs and the ambiguity, being in the middle of it. And I thrived in it. And I, I, I wanted to do that for myself. I, I think for me, it was an experience that was rare, you know, where I was in the front seat at something that grew considerably in a short period of time and actually turned out to be somewhat successful. But I wasn't the one who was leading it. I was I was there and I was 
I was working in the business and that was very exciting. It's interesting that you, it's so interesting to me. This is why I love talking to entrepreneurs because it's such a weird, like if you said what you said, we never knew if anyone was going to come. We didn't know if it was going to work. That's terrifying to most people. It's absolutely terrifying to most people. It is. Yeah. I mean, and the recognition of, of, of you knowing at such a young age that that was really a feeling that you liked. I think that's fascinating. I just love it. Well, I studied music in college. I was a music major and I, I did not pursue a career in music because A, I'm not very good, but B, I also have tremendous stage fright. And I think that that thrill was some of the stage fright, but I did not have to go out in front of people and actually perform. We just had to continue to push on. So maybe there's something in it. In the food industry, there's a lot of us creative types who have ended up on the business side of things, and it could be part of the that thrill. I'm not sure. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because, I mean, obviously, if you want to be a paid musician and have that be your livelihood, you have to be really open to that kind of yeah. not knowing how it's going to go and how you're going to get your next meal. So I think that's really yeah. interesting. I think that's a very interesting quality. And it's kind of, I don't think I've noticed a, a large number of artists turn business people in yet, but mm -hmm. I haven't been paying attention. And I see the guitar. I know that my viewers can't see it right now, but I see the guitar behind you. And I was going to ask you about that anyway. So I'm glad that you sure. mentioned that. Yeah, I I, I, it's still an obsession and a hobby of mine. But James Hoffman, I think he's the gentleman who started Blue Bottle Coffee. He's a clarinetist or he was a clarinetist. And his approach to Blue Bottle and the brand and the aesthetic, et cetera, is very clarinetist-like. <laughs> so that's probably a um a version of what I'm talking about. That's really interesting. So can you talk about going from being in the coffee business, to opening a bakery, to then starting a fund? Sure. I recognized as I was developing a pure network over the last 15 years that, you know, many of my peers, my friends, and what I was witnessing, you know, what I was experiencing myself was, you know, a need for capital to grow. And it's not coming necessarily from traditional debt and that sort of thing. You know, it's largely coming from family and friends. And then to the extent that there's a desire for any institutional capital is just very, very limited. You know, there was a sense of, of getting lucky and then maybe getting screwed when you do find some institutional capital. And that I saw as an opportunity to parlay my experience because I think that wisdom and experience is capital. You know, I know it is certainly been valuable to me from people I've learned from. And then, you know, financial means to grow the business, but as a real partner. And so we formed Gather to do work with founders, work with entrepreneurs and invest money in the business and work with them to apply our knowledge. Michael Stern, my the operating partner at Gather is a finance MBA. He's all the things that I am not uh, when it relates to capital deployment and capital allocation and that sort of thing. And we also found, I discovered that, you know, a lot of what was lacking in my peers and in myself, in my own businesses, where it was some real financial acumen directed at how it can form a strategy around the business to thrive. 
that was our premise or that was our, you know, our, our hypothesis, I suppose. And, you know, ran it by a few people, invited a professional investor to be on our advisory board, invited a former private equity person to be on our advisory board, and invited a CPG expert based here in Minnesota to be on our board, invited them to invest in the fund. And that's how we started. And of course, that was in 2019. And I was going to go out and raise a bunch of money. And I raised some money. <laughs> I raised enough to get us started. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done with the resources that we've had. But, you know, it, 2020 was a year for us to really network and understand more about, you know, what we term here as our Minnesota food ecosystem and how we can add value as that capital source that I saw was missing, not just to portfolio companies that we're working with, but also to the broader food ecosystem that we have here. Um, how have you found that transition from being a founder and an entrepreneur to being in this side of the business? Have you made a complete transition? Are you, are you still running your bakery? Yes, we still. So Rustica Bakery is a portfolio company of ours. And we as Gather, Michael and myself, we have a leadership team there, but we, we have active role in operating it. Here's how the transition worked for me. When we started Gather, we started getting inbound inquiries from a number of folks. And every one of them I saw as viable and I got excited about. And fortunately, because of the people that I brought in to help, we were able to actually develop a methodology for diligence and the viability of these businesses. So I was looking to be part of and assist you know, every entrepreneur who I came across. And we had to take a step back and, you know, look at a methodology for actually being effective as a partner with with these businesses. So for me, it was like, okay, we did this. I started it. We have interest from entrepreneurs and founders. We have interest from, you know, we have some interest from capital, uh, limited partners coming in. Let's go. And we really, really slowed down and did not make an investment for probably eight months and really work through the diligence. And I think that discipline has really helped us. And what I would say is the one thing that I've learned is slow down. Capital allocation in a hurry is really not a good idea. And I mean that with financial capital allocation. So that that was, I think, a, a big thing that a switch, a transition that I had to adjust to. How, can you talk about some of your criteria? I mean, it sounds like the diligence is working in the process, but what are you guys really looking for? Yeah, we're looking for businesses. So Gather is, we're just winding up our first fund. We've made, we have six portfolio companies. We raised about $5 million. We've deployed a couple million dollars and we're looking to close this fund and then use some capital for other things for fund two. And you know, our criteria was a million and up in revenue, some proof of concept. We're not, and we continue to not necessarily look for things with great risk in terms of consumer use. In other words, we're looking for things that are pretty straightforward. We invested in an ice cream business. We're involved in two different coffee businesses on different parts of the spectrum in terms of coffee production and roasting. We've invested in a snack business and a, a frozen breakfast sandwich waffle business. 
you know, we're not necessarily going for pea protein and emerging cell-based meats and things like that's not our bailiwick. We really do well with things that are our consumer products that we love that people, you know, appear to enjoy any time, you know, any season, any, any economic issues, whatever. And um, a million and up, a couple of our businesses are over 10 million in revenue and moving forward, that size is probably more suitable for us. Having said that, we're actually looking, you know, for the future of Gather at making larger investments and having a more meaningful operating role in the businesses that we work with. And we've got a couple of things we're working on right now that would suit that. Can you talk about that when you say more meaningful operating role? What does that mean for you? We found in the last two and a half years, Michael and I, and the limited partners we brought on, love the work, love Mm -hmm. to be in the business with the founder. And by that, I mean solving problems together, looking at opportunities together. If you'd notice in our portfolio and our companies are listed on our website, gatherventuregroup.com, there's some synergies and we've created these mini verticals and leveraging that has been really exciting. And the only way to do that, I think, is if the entrepreneur founder can develop a relationship with, for example, two of our coffee businesses are complementary to one another and the leadership in both those businesses has found some ways to work together in a very meaningful way. And that only happens with us being more closely involved in the business, as opposed to having a portfolio of, say, 20, 25, or 30 businesses that we check in on and get KPIs on. We actually want to be part of of generating better KPIs. And I found that for me, I'm 55. We're generally working with founders who are in their 30s. And I think I had said something earlier about wisdom. And I think because of, you know, I've been doing this for 20 something years, I have some things to share. And I can really only do that if we have a meaningful relationship with a founder, which means that there's some work that we got to do. So it sounds like the founder is really important to you, like the actual human being having a good connection. Yeah. Vital. I think that's interesting. So do they have to have a really strong vision? Do they have to have a really strong brand? Do they have to have some proof from either e-com perspective or sales perspective? Yeah, I think all of that. And there's that limits the number of potential founders to far more than, than, than we could work with. But then, you know, the fit and, you know, kind of who we are, what we value We're based in Minnesota, and a lot of what we do in Minnesota is to work, to do right by other people. You know, we we, we don't necessarily take shortcuts and that kind of thing. We're pretty, a little bit boring in some of our our approaches to management and, and working through things. But at the same time, it's not boring in terms of how a brand could flourish and grow. It's not boring in terms of how we can get a good return and, you know, create wealth for yeah, a founder and for our yeah. limited partner. It's not that it's we're we're also always seeking the truth, no matter how much it may hurt. And truth hurts when you're looking at product mix. Truth hurts when you're looking at, you know, the reality of if something is is getting velocity or not in a, mm-hmm. you know, in a CPG. 
yeah. setting. And truth hurts if a margin is being squished by something. And, and we have to be able to work through those things. And I think entrepreneur or founder who gets that and recognizes that the truth may result in, you know, a lot of bruises, but ultimately it's it's where we need to get. We also believe that math and numbers are very, very important. Data is very important, but it's also not, data is not what gets someone to buy or experience or love a brand. So right. it's that balance. So it is a personality fit for sure. Yeah, it sounds like you wouldn't be interested in an entrepreneur who didn't want to hear anything that you had to say. And I know there that's not necessarily a judgment. There are entrepreneurs that don't want to give up any control, plenty of them. And they look for investors who don't want control and they wouldn't be a good fit for you. Yep, yep, yep. Well said. Yeah, interesting. So you've been on both sides. You've been on the investment yes. side and also the founder side. Do you have any like, lessons or advice, things that you just feel like you have to share with people who are struggling or making big decisions, trying to get funded? One that really sticks out for me is, do you as a founder, do I as a founder, really want to take on investment and why? And I'm not talking about giving up something, giving up equity or giving up you know, any controlling. I'm talking about Continuing to do the work on something that I came up with and I started really with somebody else in mind when I look at what our success metrics are. I've met many founders who think they want to get investment because they believe that by continuing to fundraise, their business is going to become more valuable. And that's just, it's not true. Being great at fundraising does not mean you're going to have a great business. And then learning to be great at fundraising means you're probably not operating your business very well. And so I've encouraged a number of people to just pause. And like I said earlier, slow things down, apply some discipline. I've met a number of people who really didn't want to get have an investor come in, but they thought that that was what you're supposed to do. And that's how you create value. And a brand especially takes a long time to become valuable. And doing so as an entrepreneur, as a founder, with your own skills and gifts over a long period of time, you may not end up in Inc. Magazine and you may not be profiled as an entrepreneur to watch, but you could have a really good life. So the flip side of that is, again, during COVID, we had some time because I wasn't out fundraising. We talked with a number of founders who had spent a career doing just that, maybe, you know, 20, 25 years building a business and having a really good life for themselves. And they had no reason to return our calls because we're a investment firm. They don't need an investor. They don't need anything. They don't need anybody. That's a really good spot to be in. And they may have a business that is, say, after 20 years, 15 to 20 million in revenue. You're not going to get profiled as a spectacular entrepreneur, but in my view, what you've done is is excellent. So that's the wisdom that I've I've found. And frankly, it's wisdom that as I look back on what I have chosen to do in my career, if I had applied that wisdom to myself 25 years ago, I probably would have stayed in a certain lane in a business 
would probably still be operating. I'd probably own the building that we were operating out of, and it would probably be a really good business. And it was partly my own my own restlessness. I'm a if anyone is an Enneagram follower, I'm a seven. And I think it was part of my own restlessness that kind of got got me, you know, wanting to do something else. And I'm grateful for where I am and what we're doing for sure. But I also look at what I may have done if I took the advice that I've learned to dispense about this. And it probably would have been different. I was going to say the impatience, I think, that you're talking about with some brands comes from the all the news around people who make the handful. It's just like regular fame, right? It's even, you can yeah, even make the totally. parallel to music. It feels right. like everyone should be hitting it big really quickly. When you talk about having the patience to build a business and a brand over years, I don't think that's how people are thinking about it for the most part right now. It's this kind of, I got to get this going. I got to get somebody interested. I got to sell it for a lot of money really quickly. I think that's what I hear most. And even when I'm talking to founders, they're, they don't have a lot of patience. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, I've got to get backing or I've got to get proof of concept and then I've got to get into this retailer. I've got to do this. I, I found, you know, the founders who I've really enjoyed developing a relationship with, even if we're not invested in their business, are the ones who really believe in what they're doing and the product they have more so than, you know, who they're going to sell to and for mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. multiple. Here's how it is boiled down for us at Gather is I've talked a lot about some of this ideas about discipline, et cetera. For us, it boils down to a really simple measurement. And that is where is profitability in the life of this business? If it's not now, and that's okay, how are we going to get to profitability? Mm-hmm. Because with profitability and with positive cash flow. You've got many, many more options than if you don't have positive cash flow. Yep. You know, I mean, right now, today, uh, we're looking at January 26, 2022. We're looking at, you know, valuations suddenly starting to be measured by the profitability and the viability of a business as opposed to, you know, just a multiple of, of air. And that's the one thing that we have kind of used as our, you know, as our arbiter of of what I would call discipline. And that is, you know, can you be, are you profitable? If you're not, that's okay. What's your path to profitability? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any brands that you aren't working with that you really admire that you think have done a great job or founders that you think have done a great job of doing what you're talking about, being really passionate, creating something of real value? Yeah, I would say, so our approach in the space that we're in includes I don't know if this is a real term. It's one I use. It would be experiential food, which would be a setting where you actually have brick and mortar people come in. It's like our, or a coffee shop or a restaurant, experiential food. In that realm, I would say that uh, Punch Pizza here in Minnesota, which is a, I think they've got about 13 stores. They've been built up over 25 to 28 years. Coincidentally, the the owner of Punch Pizza is also the first founder of Caribou Coffee. Oh wow! So he his approach is very enviable, but the way that John John Puckett has grown Punch is very different than Caribou. He didn't take any outside money; he's done it himself. He has a partner, so he and a partner are doing this. 
They have an incredible brand. They're passionate about what they do. They stand behind what they do. And it's a very, very valuable business. So for experiential food, that's the one that I would I would say I would love to be part of, but we we there's no entry door. <laughs> they don't need one. And then for consumer packaged goods, for kind of that end of the spectrum, let's see, I've always admired Kind Bar. I think that the way that they've grown, my experience with them as a consumer, the brand, all those things really speak to me. And I think that that's representative of, you know, right product at the right time, uh, right brand at the right time. Huh. and it's a brand that I believe is is going to, you know, last. It's going to be around. So that's what I would say on the CPG side. Interesting. Can I ask you another question about what you said about the, your plans for your funds? Yeah. So you started with small brands, smallish brands that have about a million dollars in revenue as, as a minimum, and, and you want to move to bigger ones that are about $10 million. What's, what's behind that? Well, a couple of the companies in our portfolio right now are more mature. They're over okay. 10 million revenue. And as a venture investor, one who invested growth capital and has a small interest in those businesses, we believe in them. We do have connections with the founder, but you know they have systems in place already that you can leverage when you start talking about strategy and working on strategy for the business. You know, there's more levers to pull. For smaller ones, for a business at a million or even lower, but one to, let's say one to three million, you know, those, those systems are not in place. And again, we like the work. We like to be with the, you know, with the leadership team who's running the business. And for that size business, we're sometimes creating the levers to pull yeah. to make yeah. things work. Yeah. And, and that's not the best use of our time, actually. So that those are a couple things. Furthermore, we have found just opportunities have come to us where we do have the the ability to come in, get a larger stake. It's dare I say it's almost a, a hybrid of private equity and and uh, you know venture investing. A larger stake have a role in in the leadership team, hiring the leadership team, developing the leadership team. Maybe bringing in someone from you know who's interested in running a business whom we yeah. create who we develop in our network and have a greater interest in that company. We're not parlaying that into any of our existing portfolio companies, but it's ones that we're looking at for the future. We've also found that there is a bit more of an appetite for people who like this space as investors to jump into a business as opposed to a pool fund. And I think part of it is the the nature of the LPs that we that have been drawn to us. They came out of this industry and this industry being food. And they want to stay in it in a way, not just as a limited partner in a pooled fund. So moving forward, we see ourselves being more involved with businesses where we've got a larger stake. Okay. And is the local component important to you? It sounds like you do do a lot of stuff that's local, but is that critical mm -hmm. or not really? Yes, it's vital. And I say that, and we have two businesses way outside of Minnesota, one in Boston, one in Brooklyn that we've invested in. But we've also 
outlined the adjacency that we anticipate and that we expect from these companies. And it's really exciting because what we found is the resources available in Minnesota to food brands are A, world-class, and B, cheaper than most other places in the world. In other words, there are resources for strategy and marketing support for a food brand here in Minnesota that rival anything you can get anywhere because of the work they've done with large food businesses here in Minnesota, and they cost a lot less. And then there are individuals who are remnants of some of these corporations who still live here, who are very interested in participating and doing so at a value. We're Minnesota. We're not New York, LA, San Francisco, whatever. So that's one is that there's valuable resources here too. Our ecosystem, as I alluded to earlier, and what's happening in food here in Minnesota right now is at a really exciting inflection point. There seems to be more capital coming in. There seems to be more people who have been in the food industry who are staying in Minnesota and are driven by entrepreneurial ideas and notions. And they're all kind of converging. And Mm -hmm. we would like to be a part of that. And as such, if a founder of a company that we're working with that's outside of Minnesota will create an adjacency to Minnesota by, let's say, speaking to a group of entrepreneurs or helping to guide an entrepreneur here, that's a win for us. And that's part of our local um, drive. Awesome. That's so cool. That's so great. I think it's very unique what you're doing. I think different than, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and there are so many different points of view, but I think what you're doing is really cool because you care about where you are very much. And I think the way that you go about finding the right people for you guys is, is really awesome. And it sounds like you have some great relationships and, you know, it's not all about getting in and out as quickly as you can, but really adding some good value. Oh, that's the other thing, Christy, is (laughs) uh, we found that we can be on the receiving end and benefit from somebody who has had to exit something quickly because these brands, like I said earlier, can take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a couple of things where an investment firm has is forced because of time to move on from something Mm -hmm. and the value has not yet been realized. That's one of the things about food is it's a long timeline. And the ones that look like they happen quickly, there's usually a much longer story behind it. Yeah. So we're very mindful of that. Like I said, I'm 55. I plan to do this for as long as I can. My partner in this is in his mid 30s. So I think we have a long time to go here. And we're looking at things more longer term. Awesome. It's exciting. Is there anything before we wrap up? I mean, there's so much great stuff in here. I really appreciate all the insights and advice. And I'm sure so our listeners will too. Is there anything else that you feel like I really want to say this one more thing? Yeah. Even in light of in light of that, I still believe that trends and things will come and go as far as you know, methodology and and ways to build a business. There's, I don't know, gosh, I wonder how many books are written every single year about this, but it really comes down to fundamentals. And the fundamentals are, do I have something that somebody wants? Am I solving 
a problem that exists? Is there value for the consumer? And is this something that I can see myself doing? And can it can it be something that generates a profit? And those fundamentals, if they're kind of woven into, you know, discipline, can really create some great results. And also just if when you're peering into the abyss and <laughs> not sure what you're going to do, like I said at the very beginning, you know, we weren't sure if, you know, I didn't know if the company I signed on for was going to still be around because Caribou yeah. had to raise a lot of money and, and it did. But when you're staring into the abyss, what is the truth behind what you're doing? And I guess that's it. With all the materials and everything available to people, those are things that you can continually look inward on and not be swayed by outside influences, if that makes sense. That's, it makes I guess, sense. The last thing. And it's so, it's so simple also when you think about it. And it's something that I think it's so easy to lose sight of too, because you get caught up in whatever. When you talk about the abyss, like I stare into the abyss sometimes and I don't know where I'm going or what's next. And I have to do the yeah. same thing that you said. I have to ask myself those questions because if you can't answer them, you might have to think about something else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's okay too. Yeah. Which is okay too. Exactly. Gosh, well, thank you so much. I mean, this has oh, been great. I really enjoyed welcome. the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.